I'm Stephen Gregory Smith. And I'm Matt Connor. <laughs> Are you sure? Matt, no. And I'm Matt Connor. There we go. Places, everyone. It's time for the Connor and Smith Show. Or maybe it's not. Maybe their understudies are in tonight. Thank you, places. So. Wait, who would be your understudy? Who would I pick to be my understudy? Yeah. Gannon O'Brien. Um, who would be my understudy? I don't know. Um, Matthew Broderick. Okay, so I went local, you went insane. Okay. Um, so, so sorry this With is... So yeah. sorry this is late. Um, full disclosure... But if you're in the UK, this is early. Full disclosure, it's been a busy day. Um, Susan's album, I Wish It So, wrapped today. Um, so exciting, so beautiful. We had some other interviews with folks and uh, a function to go to. Anyway... We are ending Polka Party Weekend strong with Joe Polka. This is a great conversation we had with him last week. We go everywhere from politics, radio, history, theater, um, really fascinating discussion. And we've loved talking to the Polkas this weekend. And um, we hope you all listen to it uh, and spread it around it's it's been a really fun group of interviews with an amazing family yeah and you know what i mean they're just such a great example of families that you don't really under you don't even know that there's just hidden gems under everybody's story everyone has a story i wish we could interview everybody and i think there's another polka that we didn't get to the other the other sister right yeah so sorry about that um I guess, I guess uh, if you want a Polka Party Part 2 addendum, just contact us. Nor- they, Nora, Joe, and Sue all have our deets. So yeah, let us know. Let us know. We will just, we'll just shoot the gab. I didn't, I didn't want to say shit. We'll just you shoot, just did. We'll just shoot the gab. Wow. Um, all right, so we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Joe Polka to round out the Polka Party weekend. We'll be right back. Hello. Hey, hey, hey. Is that Joe Palka? It is I. Hello, are welcome. We, yeah, we, are, are we recording already? Or is we it, are, yes. Oh, we are, so we, we're live. We are. Well, wait, wait, so, so this damn show doesn't even have like a theme song or anything? Oh, th- we add that in post. What, is it like, it, it's the co- you could do something. What rhymes with Gregory Smith? <laughs> I haven't figured it out yet. The ones Joe. to write the dance. Hold on a second. I gotta just uh, turn down the stereo, darling. Darling, would you, would you would you kindly turn down the Matt Connor Christmas album for me? Whatever for. <laughs> because oh my gosh. I'm recording with Matt and and Stephen Gregory as I speak. Oh, oh, very good. <laughs> yeah, actually, you are listening to it. It's it's. it's you hear that? Do you hear that? That's amazing. If you can't hear that, you ought to learn to play louder, Matt. <laughs> anyway, could, could you turn that down? <laughs> Actually, Boochkins. Ah, yes. No, we love that Christmas album. We really uh, do. You know, you know, I used to have a neighbor who was dealing with cancer at one point, and he drove around the neighborhood with that 
with one of my albums. And he would always, in the middle of July, like pull up beside me. And he'd say, hey, Matt, I'm listening to your Christmas CD. Oh, that's that's nice. You know, a little bit of Palka trivia that probably I used to live in Omaha where Mannheim Steamroller, of course, is 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 based and would actually do a few commercials every now and again at the very recording studios where Mannheim Steamroller uh, did their thing. And uh, Chip Davis, of course, uh, I, I dealt closely with his ex-wife. She was married to him at the time. But anyway, uh, when we came to uh, Washington a few years later, I had this Mannheim Steamroller Christmas album. I was working at WMAL, and I, I said to Tom Gager, who was a legendary midday man uh, here in Washington, I said, Tom, what do you think of this? And I played him The Silent Night. He goes, oh, my God good you'd have to know tom that's just the way he talked oh my god and uh he played my album it was the very first time manheim steamroller was played in washington dc radio now i didn't play it it was my album tom gager played it but uh when i listen to your stuff and this sounds terribly patronizing matt and i forgive me if it does but i enjoy it every bit as much as manheim steamroller i if people are unfamiliar with your work uh on cd they've got to go out and get it it gets my endorsement oh, thank you um you know that those albums are a whole different conversation you know why don't you tell them what you did this past holiday season with those albums well i, I gave a few of them away with uh, to, to friends i said, met matthew uh, oh, oh, oh but, me yeah, yeah. yeah okay oh that's well, what i was wondering well Stephen. um during the pandemic, we had, uh, you know, I had cases and cases and cases of these Christmas CDs down in the basement. So we live in Fairlington, which, of course, has all kinds of little subdivisions and whatnot. And so every night, the week or two before Christmas, I would put, you know, hundreds in a bag and go around to all of these cul-de-sacs and leave three albums on everybody's door. Really? Well, no one had a clue. No one knows who I am. Yeah. So uh, they all, the neighbors all started writing on Facebook and saying, did someone leave these? Should I open these up? Did, is uh -huh. this some, you know? Yeah. A little did they realize what a treasure that actually was. Lots of, yeah, because you've done at least three. I know, let me see if I can get them in consecutive order. You did Icicle, and then you did Snow, yep. and then you did uh, Winter. And I yep. think those are the only three Christmas. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And what I love is the, uh, the diversified selection. I, yeah, I think you even have a little Polish Christmas song in there on, on Icicle and uh, just things you don't normally hear. And it's, it, it's so much fun to listen to. I, I like it. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're my biggest fan. Speaking of fans, let's just jump to how, I guess, Joe, we actually officially kind of met and worked together professionally on this production of Carolina Change in Falls Church. A $20 bill. Oh, <laughs> you were the $20 bill. Yeah, you were the $20 bill. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I, I was very nervous about the complexity of that piece. And I walked away, I think, seeing the simplicity of that piece. I don't know how you did because I, I'm not a musical guy and I uh, have been in any number of music. I'm a song and dance man who doesn't know how to sing or dance. 
my my first ever show that I was in uh, was in community theater back in 1977. I played Conrad Birdie in Bye Bye Birdie, and we opened the very week Elvis died. So, oh, wow. but I, you know, again, I've been in several musicals, but I it's got to be a song I can sell. And fortunately, that's what Carolina Change was. But the story, not only your direction, but Ayanna Blake was just so spectacular. I did something I had never done before. And I don't even know if you know this. You probably do. Uh, I actually called Nelson Presley from the Washington Post. And I said, Nelson, you've got to come down and hear this lady blow the roof off the place every single night. He was supposed to have come one night, but something happened. He had something else he had to cover. So he never saw it. Ayanna Blake would go on, of course, and win the Best Actress in a Musical uh, Helen Hayes Award. I guess that's called the Hayes Award. But there is no one who could, she could go on Broadway with what she did in that musical and she would have been just fine. I was so proud to be a part of it and it worked out okay. I, you know, I, I hit my notes as my daughter tells me. <laughs> yeah, no, you were fantastic in that piece. And it's funny you say that you're a song and dance man who doesn't know how to sing or dance because I think that is really what makes you so charming as a performer is a, you're so authentic and it just, everything comes from you. And, you know, I used to have a dance teacher once say, if you're a true dancer, no one has to look below your hips. Ah. And I kind of believe that with just performers, that if you don't have necessarily, you know, certain techniques, as long as you're honest and believable, I think all the technique stuff kind of falls by the wayside. Well, it, it's interesting you should say that because early on in my love of, of, of Broadway uh, musicals, it, it occurred to me that some of the finest performances uh, were by people who don't necessarily know how to sing, whether it was a Richard Burton in Camelot or a Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. And let's face it, Carol Channing, I mean, she could certainly carry a tune, but I put my hand in here. You know, she uh, she really didn't have a great voice, but she knew how to sell it. And I, I, if you can do that, it's a great thing. So my parts always in the past have been things like Allie Hackam and uh, in, in Oklahoma, and I played Herman in, Mo in a beautiful community theater production of Most Happy Fella way back in 1978. And it's just stuff that you can sell. And uh, I, it, it, this this fell right into my wheelhouse, this uh, playing I, the part of uh, the, the grandpa in Carolina Change. It, yeah, it was a fantastic experience. But let's, let's move on to just other uh, stage... Um, things that you have either originated or been in what is your career uh envelop you go from uh, radio stuff to uh, uh straight plays to musicals yeah oh i've been up and down and over and out uh, <laughs> i you know I, I can't remember who was interviewing me and i said i have a storied career None of the stories are that eventful, but there's plenty of stories that are associated with it. I, you know, started at a radio station at WMDI in McCain, Pennsylvania, $2 an hour. I used to work uh, 21 hours a week, and that was a six-day week, and I would clear, I would gross 42 and clear 35. 
And somehow or the other, I, I made ends meet ten dollars for rent, ten dollars for food, and then ten dollars for, uh, for for cigarettes and beer. I mean, what more does a guy ne- need back in 1974? And I moved on to a little station in Meadville where they actually paid benefits. Then one on the outskirts, WEDO of Pittsburgh, which was actually in McKeesport, up to Erie for five years, where I met Sue. Out to Omaha, WOW. So, you know, to I could make the story much, much longer, but uh, I was WMAL and I thought I'd arrived and I would never, ever leave there. And then a crazy thing happened. People will remember from the old days that they had what they called a corporate buyout of ABC by a, a group called Cap Cities. And they started firing people left and right. I was one of them. And uh, I was on my way to Buffalo to be a uh, the afternoon drive guy. But Channel 5 said to Sue, we would like you to be our full-time weathercaster. And uh, she said, well, my husband has this job opportunity at WBEN. And he said, well, couldn't he be the one to stay at home and take care of the kids? And ouch! Uh, you know, and I say ouch because it was... It was not. It was a decision that was thrust upon me. I didn't want to do it, but I knew it was the right thing to do. And so Sue's trajectory, star trajectory, just really shot sky high. And I had to do sort of a catch as catch can kind of career. And I transitioned from being a disc jockey to a talk show host. I was at WCBM, then WRC Radio. Uh, in in Washington, and things went very well there. But then I lost my job there in '98 and was out of the box for the longest time. And I switched to teaching, and I taught in the inner city, and that was my greatest adventure of all time, uh, because I was in the heart of the hood, uh, over on the other side of the Anacostia River, and uh, with my homies, my youngins, my peeps. And uh, I, you know, you asked me if I was a very good talk show host, Stephen and Matt, I'll tell you, yeah, I was pretty terrific. But ask me if I was a good teacher and I say, I have no idea. <laughs> but somehow or the other, we made it work. And uh, what were you teaching? I was teaching English. I had always, I had no degree in English, but at the charter schools, you didn't need it. You could get by with enthusiasm, which I've always been blessed with plenty of, but I always had sort of a literary bent uh, to my uh, my journey because I, I love to read. I, I lo- of course, love plays, and I was an impassioned liberal. I was liberal when liberal wasn't cool. Understand? <laughs> uh, anybody who's to the left of me needs a note from their mother. Uh, <laughs> I had done my first uh, liberal talk show in 1988, to give you an idea. But in uh, 2000, uh, actually, it was in 1999, I did some long-term sub-work at Einstein High School in Montgomery County. But then I went to the Idea Public Charter School in, uh, uh, in, in over in Northeast, where I was just telling you. And uh, I, I, I was good at it. I, I could make it, I, I was a good salesman for uh, the, 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 the English sentence. And I, we, I went to some old stuff, like, I don't know if you guys ever had to learn to diagram sentences. Mm-hmm. And, did you have to? I mean, it's a wonderful tool. It's so low tech. And it's something that if, if kids today had to do it, I think they would have a, a broader foundation of, of writing a, 
a correctly, uh, a, a grammatically correct sentence. But uh, you mean you, you mean you you mean you'd write the sentence, you write your sentences out, and then you write like predicate, verb, noun. There's pronoun. a there's what they call a diagram, and you know to do it on the radio as we are here, it'd be very difficult to explain, but. What I found with my students, and I think this would be true even in places other than over there in the hood, uh, that kids have a, a, a good sense of verbiage about them, but they don't know where to put this word or that word. Well, what that word is really connected to. If it's a preposition, there has to be an object to the preposition. If it's the subject of the sentence, it's it's got to have subject-verb agreement. Now, this, I think, is universal, but particularly there where they would just throw words down on a page and have no understanding of, they knew what they wanted to say, but it was just so heavily uh, inundated with words here and words there that uh, the diagramming helped out. And uh, I think what I was most successful at, and this kind of gets back to our, our, our theater, uh, I was, had to teach Shakespeare. And if you want to learn Shakespeare, the best way to learn Shakespeare is to teach Shakespeare. And I found myself somewhat adept at at reading aloud to them, even though Shakespeare had, I'd never been particularly fond of it. I had never been in a Shakespearean play, but all of a sudden it was it was coming out in a very nice way. And uh, the kids, my my students, ninety nine percent African American, over in uh the in in deanwood uh they loved shakespeare and i think it was that whole rap thing we would go to the folger showcase uh were you familiar with that the folger, the folger showcase? showcase no they, they would enlist uh, they would get schools to come in and perform a half hour of shakespeare uh once a year and it was a wonderful thing and i'm, I'm sure they're still doing as a matter of fact our good friend cam mcgee was uh, known as the mistress of the travails or the mistress of the whatever it was but she was one of the ones in charge of it but uh we did uh macbeth in the hood and i had my three witches come on with a boom box back then boom boxes were still something and when shall we three meet again in summer darkness or in rain where the hurly burly da 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 da, da. and they do a little dance and uh, had uh, if you're familiar with the movie o uh, that sets othello in a high school basketball situation well we did pretty much the same thing we had uh, macbeth uh, be the captain of the basketball team and lady macbeth was in a cheerleading outfit and uh, we made it work and they they awarded us as the the uh, there was no real awards for outstanding production but they kind of phrased it in such a way that we got the big award for the day and you know I was with my 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 peeps and it was just a great thrill for them and it was an exhilaration uh, and I, I knew we'd accomplish something but newly emboldened by this sudden facility I had with with uh, with Shakespeare, I went to Washington Shakespeare Company and sort of horned my way into a uh, into a uh, an audition. And uh, Garof Gopalan, may he rest in peace. Did you know Garof? No. Yeah, he was in a very tragic situation. He was uh, well. 
he was mugged one night and uh, he lost his life in, in the, under those particular circumstances. Sweetest man alive. He's, I mean, Matt, this guy is Stephen Gregory Smith sweet. Yeah. He was just a lovely guy. But I got into their production of Edward III and, and have maintained somewhat of a connection with Washington Shakespeare Company, now known as Avant Bard. God, I hope they change that name. Uh, and, <laughs> so if and you're have, listening. <laughs> yeah, and have branched out to any number of theaters uh, in, in the area, a couple of equity theaters, even though I'm non-equity. But the, the fun one was Creative Cauldron, where the most pleasant woman in the world, Laura Hull, uh, who puts people completely at ease. She's totally unenamored with what she's managed to accomplish. And she's been so, you and you both and, and Laura have been so kind to my daughter, Nora. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was, it's a lovely small theater to be associated with. And yet you got to stay on your toes because that theater is going to get big someday. I hope it doesn't, but someday it's going to get big and it deserves a much bigger stage and, and a platform that can implement theater in a nurturing way like Laura does it. And I, I'm so grateful to her and grateful to you guys for that wonderful opportunity. I've done some work with Cena and uh, with Quotidian, which no longer exists. I'm finding myself lapsing into a, uh, a an Irish play mode. It seems that uh, people like me for playing an Irish curmudgeon and I'm, I, I like it. it I, there's nothing like the Irish writers. So I've done a lot of uh, Connor McPherson. I did some uh, Sean O'Casey. I was uh, captain uh, what is it? I didn't know. I, captain, I was the captain in, in Juno and the Paycock. And so the, the, it's gone well. It's gone well. I haven't said anybody's world's on fire, but uh, I, I feel very proud of what I've managed to accomplish. Now, the, the theater, was it Quotidian? Quotidian. Quotidian. What was, what was their sort of umbrella of work? Well, it's interesting because they... Um, it did like to do an awful lot of Irish plays. Uh, you know, everybody likes to do Irish plays and everybody, I think, fancies themselves as a the Irish theater without necessarily calling themselves that. Uh, I can only tell you that Jack Sparbury, who was the artistic director, was a lovely man. And uh, they would do a variety of things, mostly classics. They did Hobson's Choice. They did uh, you know, some very good stuff. I'm happy to say that with the uh, the Connor McPhersons that we did, uh, if I get the mo mo most recent one, Port Authority, uh, which was I think their second to last production before everything closed down for the uh, for the pandemic, was a big success for them. And you know they used to put fifty fannies in the seat every night. Yeah, I, I can remember when I was working for Washington uh, Shakespeare Company, and by the way, I love those people there, uh, Chris Henley and and Jay, and so many wonderful people over there. But you know, you could be in a cast of seven and still outnumber the audience. Now, Joe was was I don't know how many homes uh, Washington Shakespeare had, but the one that I remember was the one that's no longer in existence that was there in Arlington. The Clark Street Playhouse. The Clark, Clark Street, Street Playhouse. Playhouse. Some wonderful ghosts in that place. I'm sure it's been torn down. But uh, when I started with them, I was there. And, uh, you know, I was a Johnny-come-lately to that gang. I only started with them about 13 years ago. 
that's a theater that's been around for 30 years and they have their long time uh, connections and people who basically grown up in that Clark Street Playhouse. But I was in about four or five productions there and have some very fond memories of that, that ghostly, terrible place where the acoustics were awful. But, uh, you know, we put on a show. They moved down to uh, the Gunston Arts Center. And got, oh, there was an interim place. There was a theater over at the, in Arlington at the old museum, which was originally in Arlington. And they created a community space out of it. And uh, we were there for about a year or two. And then uh, I think we got bounced out. I don't know. And, and moved over to Gunston. So it, it, it's, they've had, they themselves have had, had a very storied history, but uh, no one can deny the passion of what they've tried to do on a shoestring. And, and I, I felt very privileged to be a part of their gang. Someone told me once that the Clark Street Playhouse used to be a train station. Boy, I, I never saw any train tracks over there. I know it was probably a warehouse or a, a foundry or something. Who knows? I do know that for one production, we actually had a homeless guy living in the back and uh, he would come out while we were doing this terrible play called Red Noses. And uh, there were some girls who were maybe dressed a little less fully than than, you know, one might expect. And he would just come out when the girls were out and sit there and watch them and then disappear into the back room. So uh, it, it had its stories. You know, there's no question. I want to see that play. I want to see the play about the homeless man coming out. Yeah, right? Oh, you know, it was funny because I remember he was bothering some of the people. And I walked up and I thought he was one of the guys working on the set. And uh, he was holding a six pack of beer and I was just joking with him. And I walked back to the dressing room and about three of the people came back a little while later. They said, how come you didn't help us? I said, what did you need help for? I thought that guy was one of the set guys. They go, no, that was the homeless guy. I said, oh, geez, you should have uh, told me. I mean, I wouldn't have, you know, been uh, 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 violent with him or anything. As a matter of fact, when a guy's got a problem with drinking, I know just how to handle him, having had one myself at one time. Uh, but, uh, I feel sorry for people like that. They, you know, they need, they need like most people in all over the country who struggle with some terrible, terrible thing, whether it's some sort of lust addiction or alcohol addiction or drug addiction, they need our compassion. They don't need our vindictiveness because all that does is exacerbate their situation. Isn't it, isn't it amazing how when you're in the arts and I'll just, I'll just make an example. Like when I, when I cooked chicken at KFC, when I cooked chicken at KFC, that's really all I focused on. And that's all I cared about. And when it was done, I didn't care anymore. But, you know, when you're in the arts, you take on a whole different responsibility just in general to your other castmates, to your audience, to your life, to your research and researching what you're doing and becoming almost, you know, a a different part of the community when you when you're a part of the arts. Yeah. And, and, you know, of course, it's a job and there are many jobs like this. Anything that's creative in least uh, you never have a quitting time. You're always on your game. You're always thinking, what is it that I have to do to, uh, for instance, as a newscaster, I have a quitting time. 
But when I was a talk show host, I never had a quitting time because I was always listening to news and thinking about what I was going to do for my show. Well, the same is true for the arts, isn't it? Even if you're an actor, you're constantly rolling things through your head. What can I do? What little different take? How can I attack a line a little bit differently? But uh, I think that uh, the, the best of us are constantly contemplating how can we best serve the community? And there's room for some argument here and some rigorous debate here uh, because I think sometimes we fall back into our own cliches, our own sense of political correctness that, uh, you know, we, we've been very good about those voices out there, those people who are struggling. But sometimes what we're not real good at is finding out where the pain is. Uh, for instance, those horses' asses who attacked the Capitol on uh, January 6th. I have no sympathy for them, but should I? Should I find out what is it about these men who, if I met them under any other circumstances, may not be bad guys? What is it that compels them to have this pain? That's a great question the theater could and should address, but will they? And I, I, I think that we have to focus on where the pain is in the community and not limit ourselves just to those, those precious voices that we are acutely aware of have experienced pains, either through the color of their skin, the, 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 their religion, or uh, their, their sexual preferences. Right. Yeah, I, you know, I sympathize with those. There's always room for more good work to attend to those, but not to forget that there's, there, there's other people out there crying for help. And I, I hope we can be a part. Let's put it this way. Let me put it in a nutshell. I hope we can be a part of the solution and not just be vindictive. I don't like those guys anymore than anybody else does. But if I was going to exercise my abilities, I want to be one of those guys who tries to understand why they are the way they are. Yeah, I I won't get on my, my box, but like I feel like growing up as a child, every parent kind of teaches their child metaphorically that uh, he's got the whole world in his hands and also Jesus loves all the little children. But then somewhere along the lines when we grow up as adults, it, it, it feels like um, he's got the whole world in maybe America or he's got the whole world in Virginia. But I try to always remind myself that we are looking at the world from the lens of the International Space Station, and it's it's a it's a planet. Yes, yes, yeah, no, no question about that. That it's 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 something that's that's far far bigger than than any of us can comprehend. But we 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 tend to be relatively small voices. Uh, because we, you know, we're not broadcasting on TV. We're performing from a stage. But I do think that the the intimacy and the essential impact that the stage provides can have an enduring impact on those few who come to see us. And when I say those few, even if we're lucky enough to have a 500-seat theater that's jammed full, that's still very few relative to the population. But we can make a statement that, that can impact the world. Right, and I I don't think I'm being too Pollyanna-ish when I say that. Right, I I just this reminds me, Matt just reminded me of something that I was listening to another podcast recently, and it it was a woman astronaut who had been up there. I wish I could remember her name right now. I'm so sorry I can't at the top off the top of my head, but 
They were up there when during this, the insurrection, what, during all of this, like the pandemic starting, everything. They yeah. came back in, I think, late March, early April, but in there was a little bit of time there where there were discussions that were being had like lots of discussions like how long can we stay up up here here? um and then she said i was the only woman and the other two gentlemen were one was russian one was chinese i believe and she said there was talk about like okay we might have to repopulate the species worst case scenario Ooh. and and it was in i want to write that play a three-person yeah. play looking yeah. at the earth while all this crap is going on yeah yeah i mean and you're talking about the recent crap that we all put up with uh, yeah yeah um you know it, it you know, the, the question that we asked ourselves from the time that we understood what the Holocaust was, how could we have let this happen? And yet we saw full-fledged how that dynamic came into play on January the 6th. No, there were no Jews who were killed. There was no uh, mass killings or anything else like that. But the same circuitry that wired up the Nazis had wired up those men. Now you flick the switch. It's a different light. They're not killing people in gas chambers, but they're engaging in activities that uh, that you know had another light switch been hit. Who's to say what would happen now? I don't know necessarily that it would have meant the end of mankind, but it certainly would have meant the end of our country as we knew it. And who knows what could happen after that? And so uh, it's it's hard. It's hard, it's hard even to read the paper in the morning. I'm an old talk show host. I love giving my opinion, as you probably have already determined here. Uh, but uh, it's, 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 I feel so helpless, like I can't do anything. And I tried to do the little things, go knocking on doors for Democratic candidates. I did that up in Pennsylvania this past time. So I'm a political junkie as well. But uh, I, I feel so helpless when I see what, what they're trying to do. And, you know, you put your faith in a good guy and we finally got a good guy as a president and hope that he makes the right choices. Well, I, I, I thought, I, you know, I was naive enough to be hopeful um, the, the night after the insurrection, the day after when it felt like, oh, wow, even the Republicans are like, this is a bridge too far. This is unacceptable. You know, the Twitter ban and the, I, I was like, oh my God, th- this, it took this, but finally, but no, no, very quickly after the dust settled and it was, well, yeah, it, it right. could have been Antifa. Yes. You know. Oh, and how he he only peed a little bit in Nancy's office. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, I, hey, Joe. When you interview, when you had your talk show, um, what 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 did you like to talk about? Like like, uh, your forte was like sports politics. No, no, no. Although you know, I I I, I still I, I I enjoy some sports. I'm not a, a junkie by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, it was all political. It was all political and unabashedly so. And I forgive me. I uh, twice was named the best talk show host in Washington back in 1996 and 1998. That's and then, a- 
Well, it, it was really cool. I was very proud. And uh, I, some of my good friends who were talk show hosts were very happy for me. Guys like Tony Kornheiser, who had been a previous winner, and uh, a few other people as well. Uh, it, was, uh, it, it was really great. Now, they stopped hiring liberals after that. And I was unable to find work when I, that's when I transitioned to being a teacher, thinking that if I'm such a good liberal, let's see if I can uplift children. And I've already told part of that story already. But uh, I, I used to say that I can defend uh, gay people better than a gay man. I can defend African-Americans better than an African-American can. And I can defend women better than a woman can because I'm a white guy and uh, I can, uh, I've got nothing to lose by this except what's right and what's wrong. I have no vested interest. And I also used to say that I, I love beating up on cranky old white men. And a cranky old white man could be uh, a woman, like a Jean Kirkpatrick, who was still alive at the time. It could be someone who was African-American, a cranky old white man, uh, like a Clarence Thomas, who uh, was part of that rage back in those days. So uh, it, it made for a pretty good show, if I do say so myself. Do you remember, uh, gosh, now I'm, I was, I don't know where I was at home growing up. I think, I don't remember the guy's real name. I think it was DC 101. I think he was called the Greaseman. The Greaseman. Yes, I knew him. I played softball with uh, a lot of his fellow workers. And uh, the Grease may be uh, a, a classic case. Sometimes, you know, I, I don't, you put all this into spiritual context, which you were alluding to even just a few moments ago. Uh, Stephen Gregory about uh, how, you know, in the way, initial moments after January 6th, you, you had some hope and then things started to change. And I always tell people God works in strange ways. And there was a reason for a Donald Trump. There was a reason for a George W. Bush with no George W. Bush. There would never been an Obama. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes we have to wait and see how things play out. But getting back to the Grease Man, who was a very gifted radio performer, but he ran into some trouble. Uh, he idiotically said um, one time uh, after he had heard, or no, it was, it was in the initial stages of the Martin Luther King holiday. And he says, hey, maybe we should shoot four more and we can get the whole week off. Uh, and that ended his career. No, it it was terrible, but they fought for him, fought for him, fought for him. And he did, you know, he managed to maintain, he apologized and should have been fired. And I think that obviously if it happened today, he would have been fired in a second. It wouldn't be but a couple or three years later, he was back on the air and I think he was on W Light or maybe Classy 100. And there were a couple of guys, African-Americans who'd been dragged around Texas uh, on the end of somebody's car. And he made some disparaging remark about that. Well, that was it. He was done. And I, I had interviewed him one time after the first incident, before the second. I said, why did you say that? He goes, I don't know. I have no idea. Have you guys ever said something or done something? And you said to yourself, I don't know why I did that. Sometimes I think the man upstairs puts thoughts in our heads and words in our mouth so that we can have a bottom and we can have a come to Jesus. 
and uh, I'm speaking figuratively there. It, it doesn't have to be Christian. It can be Jewish. It can be Muslim. But I do think that uh, sometimes life's, lives are orchestrated so that we feel that pain and we can lose something that we love terribly. And he just wants us to uh, be a different person. And I know I experienced that when, when I quit drinking 22 years ago. Uh, never had a DUI never hit anybody, was always a gentleman, uh, but things were not moving and I couldn't understand why. And so I thought, I'm just going to quit. And I did. And I, I got into the spiritual context of things, which is, uh, has been of vital importance to me. And all of a sudden, nice things started happening. Not overly triumphant, but nice enough for me to, to brag a little bit. Uh, I had always wished that the grease man would have been humble. His solution was, hey, let me teach a class at Howard University. No, Greece, if you want to make amends for these terrible things you've been saying about black people, go teach an African-American kid to read. Don't tell him you're don't tell me you're going to go to Howard and teach kids a broadcasting class. So uh, Greece had a lot to learn. But guess what? I liked him and uh, he his fellow workers liked him. And I hope he's found his peace. I hope he's found something to do because he was a very gifted man and it was very successful until those moments. Well, you say that he would have been fired today in a minute. I don't know. It depends on the network because let me tell you, Tucker Carlson and his like calling Joy Reid the race lady every <laughs> time he talks about her. It's awful. It's it's beyond awful. It's I can't understand, like, how does he still have sponsors? Who are those sponsors? Why are people still buying their products? Like, it's... Amen. And I'm all for orchestrated uh, initiatives in order to let those sponsors know. uh, You know, what he's doing is a, a not terribly different from the Grease Man and Howard Stern, where those guys were principally sexualized and infrequently uh, uh, racialist, let's not say racist, let's not overuse the word, the term, but uh, what the Greece said was definitely racist, but they would be, they would do, uh, they would use race to their own advantage. What these guys, uh, uh, what Tucker Carlson is doing, he's, he's trying to to say these sensational things that my guess is he doesn't even believe in himself. But he doesn't care as long as his ratings go up. He's hurting an awful lot of people. And Tucker Carlson reminds me of the kind of guy who got beat up way too much on the playground when he was a kid. And uh, someone, I'm not saying needs to take a good poke at him, but he needs a comeuppance and needs to be challenged. And uh, I would love to see someone like a uh, Chris Cuomo debate him and turn him into, well, let's let Joy Reid debate him and turn him into mincemeat. He wouldn't take her on. Well, Limbaugh never took anybody on. He was always afraid of them. She had a very, very powerful rebuttal recently. Um, and it, it, and she did make him look like a 10-year-old boy. You know, it, it's... But that's what they are, mentally, you know? Yes, and yeah. speaking of Wonder Women... Oh, yes, yes. Now, Joe, I know that you just did... You were just in the film Wonder Woman. Um, was that the first time that you had been uh, in, a, in a film? Well, I had been in uh, a couple of other TV things, uh, America's Most Wanted. 
And here I thought I got the role because I was uh, such a good actor. And when I finally saw the guy who I was playing, he looked just like me, you know. <laughs> so, but it was a great experience. And then I was in Homicide Life on the Streets, uh, which was, again, another uh, TV show. And it was a nice little role that I had. But, guys, that was way back in 1990, I think. And so... He, you know, here I am 30 years between parts. I had been up to Pat Moran's uh, casting on an infrequent basis, like maybe once every two years. But somehow or the other, they called me up for this one. And, uh, and they, of course, I had no idea what the movie was. They weren't saying. It was something called The Magic Moment. Didn't know from Adam. But uh, she wanted to audition for a policeman. And I think I had one line, something like, clear out of here. Clear out of here. And, and for people who've never experienced a theater, a, uh, uh, a movie audition of any kind, that's pretty much what it is. You go in, you can read, get out of here. And that's <laughs> what you get. You get 10 seconds and that's it. Uh, well, she said to me, she says, here, read this. I, I just want you to try this. Well, whatever the line was, it wasn't what I would eventually get. And I read it. I tried to read it as quickly as I could. So I wasn't completely cold. I did it. I thought I was suitable. Uh, and, you know, 95% of it, guys, as I'm sure you understand, is all in how you look. And I was trying to be an old man. And apparently I looked the part. But I walked out of there in March of uh, two and a half years ago, whatever year that was, maybe 2019, whatever. And uh, didn't think anything of it. I figured, eh, you know, it wasn't good enough to think that I stood a chance. And I didn't even know what I was auditioning for. I knew it was a movie, but I didn't know it was a big one. Well, it was in June. I mean, three months later, I get this call from Central Casting. And they're not Central Casting, forgive me. I keep saying that. Uh, from Pat Moran Casting, said, we want to know if you're available to be in a movie on July 16th and 17th. Well, hell yeah. And uh, they said, okay, as long as you're available, they would like you for the role. I said, yeah. And uh, and I said, so what's the movie? And she kind of goes off the phone. She goes, is it okay to tell Joe what the, yeah, yeah go ahead and tell him. You're going to be in the new Wonder Woman movie. I'm going, wow, <laughs> this is great. And so I was booked for July 16th and 17th. One was a rehearsal and I got to meet Patty Jenkins. Oh my God. I went up there with this, this wonderful woman with whom I'd been cast. She's from the, uh, the DC acting community. I think Jean Murphy is her name. She's a very nice lady and a very underrated actress. She's got this big booming, almost basso profundo voice, but certainly a baritone, just very deep. And uh, she, uh, we we went upstairs. We'd waited a couple of hours, and we went upstairs. And all of a sudden, this cute young woman comes out. And I'm thinking she's just an associate director or something like that, and she's going to rehearse us. And Jean says, "Who are you?" And she goes, "I'm Patty Jenkins." I go, "Oh my God!" And she could not have been nicer. She said, "Guys, we'll do this a million times until we're satisfied with it. You should not feel a lot of pressure." And uh, Matt and, and Stephen, I've been involved in theatrical productions of a very low caliber, very low rent and not gotten paid much, if anything, where the snobbishness has been dreadful. But here she is in a multi-million dollar motion picture and she is being as sweet as could be. And so I showed up for the shoot that day and it was a dream come true. Uh, at any given point of my line, 
uh, there's 200 people moving around. There's kids dancing, there's people looting, there's policemen running, there's cars driving up over the curb. And Gene uh, uh, and I do our, our little thing to watch the movie. You do, you're not aware of anybody else except for the two of us and maybe a couple of people in the background. And I even had a, not an understudy, but a stand-in. And uh, they were treating me like gold. It was, it was a thrill. I, I I go on and on about it. Um, I, I'm not afraid to say it was not a very good movie. I will tell you this about Patty Jenkins, though. She can get a performance out of somebody. Uh, I have no idea what uh, what future Gal Gadot has. By the way, I saw Gal Gadot, and she was wearing her short shorts. <laughs> I kept on having to say, okay, honey, my eyes are up here, you know? <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> I have no idea what her future will be as an actress. Her, her beauty dictates that she could be the next Ava Gardner, the next whomever. Uh, but, you know, she's going to be fairly limited. Acting was not her value. She just happens to have the physicality and the physical ability to do this role. But uh, Patty Jenkins gets a very adept performance from her. That guy who was playing the Donald Trump-like character, the guy with the accent, you know, conceivably, it was a weird role, but she got a lot out of him. So I think that with a better writer, uh, it could have been brilliant. Uh, but I will say that she has her gifts. Well, uh, what was the movie that she directed? Uh, it was The Monster. Yes. And she and the woman who got the Academy Award uh, uh Charlize Theron. Yes. This tells you that when Patty Jenkins works with people, she can get a good performance out of them. And it just shows you don't have to be mean to do it. You can be nurturing and 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 supportive. And uh I I wish her I am a huge fan of hers and I hope that her next project that whatever it is it's a little more viable from the written word, but as far as execution and working with people, this woman is a dream and and uh just belies what you would think Hollywood would be like. You know, don't you think that there's been uh, so many pieces of art that have been colored by the, the, you know, the 45th president and not in a good way, almost as like a gut response to yeah. his presidency. And like, there's, there's films that I expected to be better. And I was like, ah, oh, it's too commenting. It's too soon to comment. Yeah. There's, like the first one that I can recall is, um, God, what was the name of it? Uh, Beatrix goes to dinner or something like that. It was with Salma Hayek and John Lithgow. And it was basically a Trump era. And it, it claimed to be the first like Trump era movie response kind of thing where it was like a liberal Hispanic woman who was invited to dinner with this Trumpian man and his children and their spouses. And, you know... <laughs> There's you going to be an onslaught, and wait till theater opens up again. Right. Uh, there's going to be an onslaught there too, and I'm afraid if there isn't an original take that uh, really makes it poignant and significant and something redeeming for society at large, it may, just as you're suggesting, Stephen, be a little bit hackneyed even before it's out of the box. Well, I mean, it's almost like we don't even have 
enough information yet. It's still tied up in courts and in briefs that are filed in safes. Like it's too soon to say, well, this is my opinion on this, you know, sprawling disaster. Well, you see, and I, I think what you're saying is, is by and large, absolutely correct because right now, we're just finding out that Rudy Giuliani is uh, being investigated. We, you know, I am still not 100% convinced about the 2016 election results. So if I'm saying that, you're saying, well, Joe, aren't you just like these guys who don't respect the 2020 uh, election results? Well, the big difference with me is that I have evidence. We'll call it circumstantial evidence. Uh, They have no evidence. The circumstantial evidence that I have is that uh, Paul Manafort was sharing Midwest polling data with uh, Konstantin Klimenko, a Russian operative. Why on earth was he sharing uh, uh, polling data from the Midwest when three of the states, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, proved to be, uh, uh, you know, what, what gave Trump the victory? Uh, the the second part of the the Mueller report, it was loaded with obstruction of justice, mm-hmm. and now it's just been in the last couple of days that they identified this memo that was a strategy memo that proves I don't know if it proves, but it suggests that they were all worried about obstruction of justice. Had Trump been Obama, they would have impeached him in a heartbeat, and so. Uh, no, you're right, Stephen. There's a lot we have yet to learn. And, uh, you know, I, I I would someday I hope somebody squeals on what happened in 2016. Hey, maybe nothing. I might be wrong. I'll admit that they won't admit that they're wrong right now. Well, but I'll admit I could be wrong. And I've got more evidence than they do. Look at Arizona currently. Yes. This sham of a cartoon of a a firm conducting this recount, quote unquote. Uh, It's just the most preposterous, it's it's May. Yeah, and it's what I was alluding to a little bit earlier with being frustrated and unable to do anything. And sometimes I wish I lived in Pennsylvania or Arizona or Michigan where uh, my my energies could be uh, really, really fruitful, but I live in Maryland. Now, I can travel up to PA, as I did one time, or go down to Virginia, although that's becoming ever more a blue state, thank God. But in Maryland, we don't have to worry about that. It's so funny, though, but if you're driving out towards the water uh, and you get into that country, man, there's Trump signs for days in Maryland. Yes, yes. And I, I don't think that they truly believe that he was good, but I do think that they like disrupting the apple cart. Yeah. You know, the thing that just drives me crazy is that the Republican Party has never, and the Trump uh, organization has never cared a hill of beans about those people that you're talking about when you drive out toward the water. They don't care what's gone on ever since Ronald Reagan is that wages have gone down. People are making less money than ever before, and they can't understand why life has not worked out for them. They worked hard. and What's going on here? 
Well, the fact is that what's happened is that that uh, th their money isn't worth as much as what it used to be, and they've been fed a pack of lies. They're saying it's the African American who's taking it with you, taken away from you, and and look at the gay community how they're destroying our homes, and look yeah. at this, and they're buying it. They're buying it. Yeah, that, that's the the biggest suckers in the world. You know, I I, it's just. Uh... It's so interesting, you know, that, that I in my day job world, we were talking to some property developers and having a very frank conversation about the fact that this new development had no allotted affordable housing in it mm. and was losing legacy businesses that weren't being asked back. And, you know, we were handed a very an answer I didn't really quite know how to come back at which was well i'll be honest with you that business has not paid its full rent in years because it can't afford to it's not making those kinds of dollars it's in essence not a viable business anymore and unfortunately things don't get cheaper they always just get more expensive yeah and yeah. that's it's a hard yeah, learning those kind of things or, or trying to the perception of what is real versus what is. Yeah, is yeah. always the, the the ass kicker. Joe, have you ever heard of Lee Atwater? Oh, yeah. I shook his hand one time at a dinner. He was he was a brilliant uh, strategist for George H.W. Bush, but uh, a, a cutthroat. Uh, he would reveal the, uh, put on an ad, the picture of an African-American, Willie Horton, who Michael Dukakis let out of prison early. Whether or not Michael Dukakis even knew who Willie Horton was or even signed the papers, I don't know. But he did come from Massachusetts and he went out and he would murder somebody and it would, uh, it would plague his campaign. And uh, ultimately, uh, uh, Atwater, who died, I think it was brain cancer, and he uh, would apologize to somebody. I, I, if it wasn't Jesse Jackson, maybe it was to Mike Dukakis himself, who was our Democratic candidate in 1988, saying he never should have done what he did. But he did do what he did, and uh, I don't know. Did you, did you see the article that was out today? No, I didn't. Okay, I don't know where I found this, except I saw it on my phone. There was a picture of Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, and Lee Atwater in a photograph from like 1960-something. Right. And the whole article basically said, why are we here? We are here because of Lee Atwater. Yeah, he could work a room. I remember him coming around and shaking hands with people. Uh, he... He was very good at what he did. And so I don't consider him in the same category as a uh, as, as Roger Stone. I don't put him in the same category. I, I remember Jack Germond on the old McLaughlin group saying the Democrats need someone like Lee Atwater. And so uh, was he despicable? I'll say no. Was he ruthless? Yes. And unfortunately, I don't know who said it first, but politics ain't beanbag. And you got to have somebody who can be feisty and, and 
I would prefer my Democrats keep it on the up and up. I don't want them to lie. Uh, I don't want them to to deceive people. But, you know, we, we have our own sordid history, too. Uh, not recent, I'm happy to say. But uh, this, is, this is the way these things go. They've been going on for time ad infinitum. And, uh, you know, the J John Quincy Adams put out rumors about Andrew Jackson's wife. And, Stephen, you have a profoundly good sense of history I know about you. Uh, Andrew Jackson's people said that uh, the, uh, John Quincy Adams had had some kind of an affair with a, a Russian woman back when he was the minister to, to Russia, when he was a boy under uh, his dad's own administration. So these things have been going on for a long, long time. Yes, yes. <laughs> they just keep getting worse. Like the developer said, things don't get cheaper, they just get more expensive. I mean Yeah, yeah. And and they do, but you know, we've never had a circumstance in our country where uh, a bona fide election, not even a terribly close election, has been called into question. And that's scary for people because it feels like this should have been a slam dunk within days. Uh, particularly of that January 6th insurrection. And uh, yet, you know, let's, let's put it this way. Another sense of history. Back in 1867 or so, Nathan Bedford, I want to say Nathan Bedford Falls, but that would be where <laughs> it's the wonderful life took place. Nathan Bedford Forrest. Uh, ah. Do you know who he is? No, no. He, he was the creator of the Ku Klux Klan. Ah. Now, who was, what was the Ku Klux Klan? They were fallen soldiers. They had uh, uh, what they figured to be a godlike cause that they lost in the physical war. They lost the philosophical war and they were having to pay the price for being traitors to our country. So they created this thing called the Ku Klux Klan. Now, before I come to where we are today, let's stop for a second and think maybe 20 years ago. What was Al-Qaeda? Al-Qaeda was in a holy war. They lost that war. They uh, couldn't uh, effectively fight it the way they wanted to, so they became terrorists. So they actually borrowed a page from the Ku Klux Klan, whether they realized it or not. Wow. And and uh, so now we get to these other guys. Uh, as recently as two weeks ago, Anthony Blinken sat down across from the foreign minister at um, uh, at a, a some kind of meeting they had. I can't remember where they had it. And uh, Blinken was trying to make the point about how they should not be br brutalizing the Uyghurs. And and the Chinese diplomat, the foreign minister, got. And high judges said, you are in no place to tell us how to treat people. Well, thank you very much, guys, on January 6th. You've made us look bad in front of the entire world. And we can't even argue convincingly with China because of your uh, horse's ass, ass tactics that you've tried to pull off. All the Republicans are doing right now are providing solace to our enemies. And that is a sad commentary. And they ought to be ashamed of themselves. But they're not. They're not. They're not. They think they're right. And I get very frustrated by that, as I know you guys do, too. But, you know, like I say, 
the man upstairs, he's got a plan. And uh, right now we got a good president whose whose heart is definitely in the right place. You know, he's made a couple of miscues with the southern border and for sharing the uh, the the vaccine with other countries. I would have preferred him to have been uh, a little quicker on the uptake on those particular things. But he's a good man, and I'm hoping that we'll have somebody waiting in the wings, whether it's 24 or 28, to take his place. It's got to be someone likable. And um, quite frequently, you'll hear women complain, said, oh, a man doesn't have to be likable. Oh, yes, he does. Uh, that's why George W. Bush did so well. He was likable. Kerry was not likable. Gore was not likable. Biden is likable. And so uh, we've got to have somebody who the, the who can connect with that blue collar worker. We need to get those guys back. So the only person that comes to mind is Dolly Parton. Ah, you know, they were talking about Oprah, but I have become a big Dolly Parton fan in the last uh, in the last couple of three months. Uh, she's amazing. <laughs> Well, She's really wonderful. Joe, I see that we're already at an hour. Uh, we're going to wrap this up with three questions. Sure. In the pandemic, a lot of people started like baking bread and learning French. Did you take on a new learning? Yes, I did. I did. It's so funny you should say that. I started, I got a Babbel app and I started learning Polish. Oh, wow. How, yeah. How goes it? It's so hard. Uh, I, I had more luck learning Italian before a trip to Italy that we took years ago. I went to Italy. Everybody was so impressed with my Italian. I came home and two weeks later, I forgot it. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the hard part about Polish is that, you know, we have words, whether it's used as the subject or the direct object, they stay the same. The ball is round. I threw the ball. But in Polish, you, they would say the Polkoloska is round. I threw the Bolokanum. <laughs> And, you know, ah, I can't do that. But I'm still trying to learn. I'm Polish-American. I'm not pleased with what's going on in Poland right now. And uh, But I do want to learn it because I'd love to go someday and be able to at least carry on a minor conversation. All right. All right. Second question. Second question. In the pandemic, lots of people binge shows that they never got to see before or kind of caught up, to, found something that got them through. What, if anything... Were those shows for you? Oh, boy. Well, first of all, Curb Your Enthusiasm. You know, we just lost uh, Sue's dad two months ago, and he was 95 years old. And I sat down with him. I said, you know, I'm hearing great things about this show, Curb Your Enthusiasm. And he was 94 at the time. And he laughed his ass off. He thought it was the greatest thing. And uh, Stissel is the best show on TV right now. Uh, it, it, it tries to undo all the terrible things that people felt about Orthodox Jews from the movie Unorthodox, but Stissel is great. And um, what else? You know, I can recommend, I'm not saying it's the best thing I've seen. Of course, everybody fell in love with all uh, oh, that, that wonderful show with the, the multicultural, I can't, I can't think of, Brid Bridgerton. Bridgerton. But, I might suggest uh, Catherine the Great. It is a Russian production. The uh, computer graphics are very cheesy, 
but the acting is brilliant. It's on a par with the brilliant acting we used to see in Game of Thrones. Uh, it's nothing like Game of Thrones. They're trying to stay reasonably close to, I think, a biographical, uh, uh, to, to stay clo close to biographical integrity, but uh, it works for me and it works for Sue too, and we're enjoying it very much. Okay. Yeah. Larry David is also a, a national treasure. So yeah. I love that man. And um, we could love him without guilt ever since uh, Woody Allen hit the, <laughs> has gone to the wayside. Right. Right. All right. And finally, uh, if we, we have a uh, math producing this album by Susan Derry called, I wish it so. And we've been talking a lot about wishes and the power of wishes and what wishes really are. And so we've been asking our guests if they had one wish, be it for yourself, your family, the country, the world. Uh, what would that one wish be? And and I, I won't include my my daughter's wonderful song. I got a thing for you, you that you can hear on Spotify. Uh, Nora Palka, Wild Idol. I won't include that. I won't even bring it up. Well, she's got uh, her own episode coming up. She can talk about that. Okay, she can talk. It's a wonderful song if you haven't heard. I've it. loved it. Are, are you kidding? Of course we've heard it. Yes. <laughs> well, that, that's so great. No, I my wish is that. Uh, we will be a part of the solution. I think the president is setting a good, uh, he, he's got a great temperament. He's not getting any cooperation, but that we seek out ways to heal. Uh, this, this country has gone through an awful lot. It began not with Donald Trump. It began 40 years ago, but Donald Trump took it and, and made it worse for everybody. And he's a hell of a salesman. Say what we will. Uh, he could tell these people that snow was falling right now and they would believe it. Uh, so what we need to do to counteract that is uh, all of us have to be a part of the solution. What can we do, not just for the African-American and the Muslim and the gay people and the uh, people who have been struggling? Those are always front and center on my, my front burner. But I want to find out what I can do to help that, that blue-collar worker heal and find out why he's so angry. And, uh, you know... It, it just may be something beyond the 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 fear. He, he's afraid, is what he is, and see if we can help him temper that fear somehow, some way. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Joe, for speaking with us for this little. What is it? Friday evening? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Well, this has been so much fun, guys, and I wish you well. You got me. Gave me a wonder. Can you tell I was a talk show host? Yes, I loved it. <laughs> Uh, can you tell i'm not <laughs> yeah no you guys are, are wonderful i uh, and I, I i hope there's a future for on air uh it's one of the it's probably the nicest homegrown musical that we've ever had and i was part of one of myself back in 1992 now i won't even go off on that tangent but uh there's some spectacular music in that and uh just keep keep creating art guys what was the show it was called executive leverage it okay. was when uh, the Berlin Wall came down and we no longer had communism to worry about, I noticed that uh, all the powers that be suddenly lashed out at the gay community. And it occurred to me that these guys need an enemy. With no enemy, they have no viability. And uh, notice Trump, the press is the enemy of the people. So right. I, I wrote a play called Executive Leverage about us declaring war on Canada. Now, this was before uh, Michael Moore did his thing and before those guys from uh, South Park did their thing. And a friend of mine, Rory Chalcroft, wrote the music uh, about 
uh, you know, Canadians stealing all our acid rain and they crossed the borders of our great nation. And uh, it actually got nominated for best musical for a Helen Hayes, along with uh, arenas uh, uh, of the I sing and uh, uh, signatures first version of assassins. So we felt pretty proud because ours was the only original work and it never went, it never thrust us in the mainstream of, of, of musical comedy fair, like we had hoped, but uh, it, it did pretty well. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. We have to like re return to this conversation at some point. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. You know me. I love to talk about now enough about me. How do you guys like my jeans? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, great guys, great talking to you, and uh, enjoy your conversations with my daughter. And I, I guess you have my wife coming up sometimes. Pretty soon. Yes, we're we're gonna record all these in advance and schedule out a, a Palka weekend on the oh, Turner Smith show. Yes, well, there'll probably be people tailgating, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We're going to sell beer cozies. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, well, at least Sue doesn't have to shave her ears before she goes on the air. <laughs> well, listen, take care, Stephen Gregory. Take care, Matt. And I can't wait to see you guys again. Maybe I'll have a $20 bill. That I yes. <laughs> we will, you take care. Take care. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Gosh, I, like I felt like we could have gone longer. I want to hear more about the play that Joe wrote. Um, yeah. Or musical. Um, yeah, absolutely. I don't know why these podcasts are only an hour. Well, it, it, that one was longer than an hour. We. It, I don't know why they're longer than an hour. It's because we have lots to talk about. Well, you know, people have a lot to talk about. And I love that. I did not know that about Joe. When I worked with him at Carolina Our Change, I, I met him knew of him and I just thought he was uh, a fantastic contribution to that show and then to know that he also is a writer and I didn't know that he had this long radio um, career and how come we weren't asked to be on his radio show <laughs> well we I guess we were here I was somewhere yeah, I we mean were here. I might have been little but nobody knew about who we were well I'm people not, still don't I'm not sure I know who we are I don't know who I am I know who I was <laughs> I hope I know who I'm gonna be <clears throat> Um, so I know what, what is that I, song? I just thought there was a song in there, but I couldn't find it. Uh, okay, anyway, uh, so this has been the Polka Party Weekend. We, yes, we are glad you all enjoyed, and we uh, are gonna have some great guests coming up for Memorial Day weekend. Oh, it is hot, and there are cicadas everywhere, but. You know, make the best of it. And as we always say, turn, turn your, your heart, heart into art. Good night, everybody. Good night.